Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Shirazai. I'm very excited to be here today because today we'll talk about the fascinating diagnosis and the fascinating world of epilepsy and seizures. And uh, we wanted to give some examples of some historical figures uh, who have had seizures and epilepsy and how they dealt with it and all the human stories around it. The reason we approach our podcast in this way is because we think that the diseases that we talk about, um, hopefully in human terms, give us insight not just into the diseases themselves that people experience by, by, by the millions, but also in the human experience in general. These diseases are about human consciousness. It's about human um, uh, uh, struggles and striving in spite of these, these incredible uh, conditions of, of consciousness of mm -hmm. the mind. In fact, you and I, whenever we've seen this a lot, we get called to the emergency room and there's an altered mental status. That's a common diagnosis. It's a very common reason for consulting the neurology department. And, and as soon as we get that, it's a whole spectrum from complete coma to some confusion and delirium. But whenever something like this happens, we always say there's something that has to happen in the cortex that involves both, both cortices. It either is involving both sides of the brain at the same time, or there's a spread from one side to the other. Because there's no way that you can you can have uh, altered mental status without the brain, the totality of the brain being affected. So how can it be affected? Either there's a mass effect, or there's a pressure in the brain that pushes the brain and affects the the base of the brain where consciousness resides, reticular activating centers and others. Or there's a chemical process where there's an um, alteration in the chemical milieu and environment of the brain where the brain in totality is affected. Or there is a, a pharmaceutical phenomenon or toxin or infection that involves the totality. Or the, a very common one is seizures. When we'll get into the details of what focal and generalized seizure are, but in seizures, it's electrical activity that spreads from one point to another point. And if it involves the entirety of the brain, there's altered mental status. Right. And most people think that seizures is this, you know, shaking of the entire body, a person on the ground. Oh, my goodness. There's a whole milieu, a whole um, different set of expressions, some incredibly unusual expressions. And to know this is to know the human experience. Absolutely. And to know this is to know the human history and, and why... <laughs> Um, uh, people in, in uh, you know, in the 17th century were burnt and, and, and sometimes the, um, uh, ex you know, uh, the, there's a whole, um, side of witchcraft and, 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 and religious component and social components that came into this because people didn't understand what was happening. That's true. So take this conversation in that perspective, but we're going to start with uh, incredible incredible person, historical figure. All right. So we wanted to uh, start this conversation by using uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's stories. Uh, one of about, my favorite authors, one of my favorite thinkers. Right. And about his battle against epilepsy and how it was a source of inspiration for his work, yeah. which is incredible. So picture this. It's 19th century, it's St. Petersburg, and it's a bustling city. It's filled with 
the sense of old books, stories, people conversing, whispers of revolution. And there is this brilliant young writer named Fyodor Dostoevsky, and he's grappled with a curious affliction. He has seizures. And these seizures have tormented him throughout his life, and it would become both a source of creative inspiration and also an obstacle as he struggled to overcome those symptoms. Now, uh, as, as history depicts it, Dostoevsky first uh, started having symptoms of his epilepsy in his youth. And at that time, he could not have known how profoundly it would influence his existence. Um, his seizures, as was noted, were very terrifying for him. It was uh, an extremely uncomfortable experience. But there are times when it also brought moments of joy, of transcendent and divine uh, insight. Uh, to me, uh, Dostoevsky kind of interconnected in my life in multiple ways. My, my, my father and his brothers were called Brothers Karmasov. Um, I think uh, not so much for the differences in characteristics, but but some of the struggles that they faced, and and um, and and also what when I went to residency in neurology in Georgetown, I remember one of the case one of the presentations was about Dostoevsky's writings before and after seizures, and specifically the kind of seizures that created this incredible epiphany, mm. incredible sense of joy and, 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 and calm and peace in him. And that, I think, was the thing that affected me the most. That's the thing that probably pushed me to learn about human consciousness uh, more than anything else. Um, for, for me, you know, learning more about neurology and neuroscience, uh, the word seizure and epilepsy was always um, associated with a typical generalized tonic-clonic movements and uh, loss of awareness and consciousness. But uh, when I studied more about neuroscience and neurology and found out that there are multiple different types of seizures and the manifestations and the behavioral um, effects are, are so multivarious, and th that in itself was just fascinating. It was. And it makes sense. It depends on which part of the brain is involved. We'll, we'll talk about all of that uh, in later. But so Dostoevsky's... Um, Seizures definitely affected his work, like you said, the brothers Karamazov or his masterpieces like Crime and Punishment. And as he navigated the challenges of his epilepsy, he became very empathetic towards the human, uh, human population and human conditions, and particularly the psychological complexities of uh, the patients or people who suffer from epilepsy. And I mean, you and I have spoken about this. I mean, most of us go through through emotions, through habits, habit loops. Even thoughts are habit loops. And only do we dwell deeper into um, the difficult task of thinking, right. the cortical, high energy task of thinking, when we're forced into it. So, in many ways, those who are challenged. And this is not me, you know, purporting that suffering is a necessity and 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 that whole argument that comes with it, but. A paraphenomenon of this this suffering is that people are forced to think, and especially ones like him who are super geniuses, who are made to think, and and his own suffering pushed him to think. And all these characters are manifest and and created from that that suffering, that exactly. that's, uh, difficulties that he had throughout his life. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so 
Today, we're going to unravel Dostoevsky's remarkable story, and we'll also dive into the science of epilepsy and its historical treatments, the breakthroughs that have shaped our understanding of this incredibly complex condition. And so let's go ahead and describe what seizures are and yeah. how it's different from epilepsy. Now, when we use the word seizures, they essentially are defined as sudden, uncontrolled changes in our behavior because of temporary electrical disturbance in the brain. Correct. And it and can- And not necessarily loss of consciousness or altered consciousness, just no, behavior change. absolutely. And you could be conscious. Absolutely. And um, so, so like you said, it can cause a range of different symptoms um, and it can be very subtle, you know, such as um, just keeping quiet and not speaking at all um, to something more uh, obvious, like having severe convulsions and loss of consciousness and uh, being incontinent and things of that nature. Um, epilepsy is a category of neurological disorders, which is characterized by a predisposition to recurrent and unprovoked seizures. So basically, not everyone who has seizures has epilepsy. At, at least two seizures have to occur within yeah. a 24-hour period without any known trigger for a person to have or carry the diagnosis of epilepsy. So if someone has one isolated seizure, they don't necessarily have epilepsy. And so that's the differentiation between them. And that, that's, a, uh, you, that's a point of confusion for a lot it of people. It is, because pe there are many, many who have just one seizure. Right. You know, febrile seizures are very common in childhood. That's and true. Thousands of children who have had just one seizure because of a fever, that doesn't mean that they have epilepsy. Absolutely. Epilepsy is a condition, a protracted condition, let's say. Or in our situation, say, for example, um, in my case, if somebody has had some sort of a... Um, you know, a cardiovascular issue, say, for example, low blood pressure, they tend to have a seizure, but that doesn't mean they have epilepsy. It's just a one-time seizure, and hopefully it gets treated. All right, so uh, uh, the seizures that are not due to um, epilepsy are sometimes called non-epileptic seizures, right? And they can have a systemic cause, like I said, low blood pressure, sometimes low glucose mm -hmm. can cause seizures, uh, or it may be related to arrhythmias. Sometimes when the heart does right. not pump properly and the brain does not get enough oxygen and blood, people can actually have seizures. Mm. Um, and then there are the psychological causes for seizures too. Correct. Uh, but the electrical causes, they're all originating from the brain. That means there's a focus, a part of the brain that is irritated and then it starts an electrical um, process that's unstoppable. It's unremitting. It, it starts in one part and then spreads. Uh, so there's a focus. A focus could come about as a result of multiple reasons, which we'll talk about. But but it's there has to be a focus. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Which actually brings us to the different types and categorization of seizures. Um, so generally speaking, there are two main groups of seizures. There's focal and then there's generalized. Yeah. As far as focal seizures are concerned, um, these are the ones that originate in a specific area of the brain. And um, they can be divided into focal aware seizures and focal impaired awareness seizures, which means um, in like as the name depicts, 
Um, there are seizures where people are completely aware of their symptoms, but they have specific times of neurological deficits, such as for uh, you know having uh, a memory lapse, or uh, maybe their arm or leg shaking, or having some sensory deficits. Say, for example, an arm or a leg going numb. Sometimes they can have lip smacking sure. or any involuntary movements. The generalized seizures are ones that it essentially starts from a focus, but it kind of spreads all over the brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, they can be uh, different types. They can be absence seizures, uh, which was... Uh, they they have different they had different names in the past you know yeah. petty mal seizure was uh, another term that was used for absence and this is important for a lot of listeners because a lot of children are misdiagnosed or 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 actually seen in the schools as um, um, uh, obstinate kids that are not responsive but mm -hmm. uh, but what's happening is that they're actually going through an absence event a lot of times the kids themselves are not aware they're losing a period of time. Mm -hmm. So when they come back, the teacher asks, what were you doing? Why weren't you responding? They don't know what to say. That's right. And this had been going on for many, many years. Kids would get punished. They would be sent uh, to detention. But reality is it was an absence seizures. And it's very easily detected. There's a particular pattern, yeah. EEG pattern. We'll talk about EEGs. And 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 it saves their lives, right? Because Absolutely. it's a treatable condition. Very treatable. It, it, they no longer are, um, you know, entitled as a lazy or uh, uh, obstinate kid, or can or not being able to focus in class. Correct. Mm -hmm. And and diagnosis and treatment can be that can be averted. Right. Right. And um, it's quite common. I mean, I personally know some family members who have had absence seizures when they were children, and it usually goes away when they um, they become adults. Correct, correct. All right, the other type is a tonic seizure, and this is when the body um, muscles stiffen completely stiffen up. Yeah, and um, tonic seizures are usually seen in people who fall and they have loss of consciousness. Usually that tonic phase is missed, isn't it? Correct, exactly. They become exactly. tonic, they become stiff, and then they fall, and they become very um, confused, and then they wake up. Um, and then the other type of generalized seizure is atonic seizures. Correct. This is also seen in people who fall. The Basically, drop attacks. Drop attacks, exactly. They're called drop attacks, and uh, people suddenly lose uh, muscle tone. Yeah. And um, at atonic seizures can uh, also be, um, a, you know, a a manifestation of some cardiovascular events to blood pressure changes or hypoglycemia can cause atonic seizures too. And and this is another common thing we see. And, and for the audience, again, it's critical that they know that this is something that there should be in the back of their mind. If somebody's all of a sudden lost consciousness, um, seizure is always in your differential. That's true. Seizure is always something to be considered. And it's something that's treatable. Mm -hmm. So whenever they come in with loss of consciousness, and we can ask a couple of other things, you know, did they lose bowel or bladder function? Were they, there was their tongue biting. And by the way, all seizures don't manifest with those side things. That's but, right. And, and if there was a period of confusion after the fact, because with the generalized tonic-clonic seizures, there's usually a period of confusion after the fact. Exactly. Then it kind of hints towards seizures. So True. our history is quite helpful. Exactly, exactly. And it's so easy to get an EEG nowadays. Yes. And the sensitivity and specificity, meaning how how uh, accurate an EEG is in detecting seizures, pretty high, especially if it's done a couple of times. So sometimes if the first one is not showing us any epileptiform discharges. Which, uh, the in the third, brain, they don't. Correct. 
But then the second one usually can can find out. All right. And and now with the high sensitivity EEGs with these multiple leads, more in the experimental phase. Right. The reason I'm I'm getting excited about that because Sophie, our daughter, who's a bio, going into biomedical engineering, her area of research right now is about this. That's right. We are so excited that we want to actually buy her this uh, EEG device that uh, that you can connect to the head and you can see and with 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 the more sophisticated tools you can see specifically um not of course with even the regular types you can see where the seizure is coming from that's true yeah but also the the kind the the spread all the characteristics you can see that's so, right yeah. yeah yeah fascinating area to study and to do research on and then we have the most typical one which is the tonic clonic seizures mm -hmm. the generalized tonic clonic seizures they're also known as grand mal seizures and they basically involve the body stiffening up, which is the tonic phase, and then they have rhythmic jerking. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and that's a common one we see. Right. Well, the reason it's common is because it's the one that's distinct. Exactly. I think that a lot of times we miss the less distinct seizures, that's especially true. in the local hospitals where there's not a neurologist or a epileptologist. The less common ones are missed, but this is not missed because they're uh, usually have fallen and they're shaking. And there's rhythmic movements of the extremities. Mm -hmm. That's that's the reason that it's that's the kind of seizures everybody recognizes. It's easy to identify. You're Correct. absolutely right. Um, and so and, and that is usually associated with loss of consciousness, like you were saying earlier. There's a period where uh, right after the seizure, people get very confused. They go to sleep. They have incontinence, plus minus incontinence, so on and so forth. Yeah, and and uh, often tongue biting. If they're they've bitten that's the tongue, true. the side of the tongue, then it's kind of known that it's what it is. I think it's important to talk about what do you do when you see someone having a seizure? Correct. I mean, and, and it's important, first of all, even if you suspect it, that you get 911 immediately because right. sometimes these seizures don't stop uh, spontaneously. You need some medication on board, usually uh, benzodiazepine, quickly on board to, to try to stop it. Uh, the other thing is to make sure that they're um, uh, either on their back or on their side or or, or in a position where they're not compromising their breathing. Exactly. So never put anything in your in their mouth. No. Do not put your finger in their mouth to or push their tongue. Or a piece of wood. That was yeah. an old... Remember that movie? Well, there, there, there are a lot of things that happen in movies that people have <laughs> just kind of carried on, right? Yes. I remember watching that movie about um, Caesar. I do remember the old Caesar movie, Julius Caesar Maybe, movie. Yes, yes. So he was having a seizure, and then somebody puts their knife in his mouth. You know, like yeah. the the dagger, not 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 unsheathed. It looked you know? cool though. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah. And it's cover. Yeah. You know, they put that in his in his mouth because he he had seizures yeah. too. Um, but now you know there's it's recommended never to put anything in people's mouth. Check their arm to see if they have a bracelet or a pendant saying they have seizures. Mm -hmm. If they well, do... Well, somebody should immediately, and if there are a couple of you, somebody should immediately call 911. Not necessarily. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the, um, the American Epilepsy Society says, if you know that the person has seizures, if you, you know, don't yes. necessarily have to call 911. You just make sure they're safe. Make sure their head is not, you know, not hitting anything sharp. Get them out of a, a dangerous area. Say, for example, if they're walking next to a cliff or a pool. Or in the water, yes. Or if they're in the water, get them out of danger. Put them on their side. Do not put anything in their mouth. And just put something like a jacket or a towel or something under their head so they don't have any head traumas. Correct. And just wait. Usually seizures last for about a minute or two. If it goes on beyond five minutes, then that's when you actually start mm -hmm. calling 911 and do something about it. Oh, well. And if they fall asleep, that's okay. That's a very common thing. 
It, and, and, you know, the, this, the importance of these conversations we have is that just knowing that fact can save lives. Yeah, I really absolutely. think that this is critical for people to know, to distinguish some, some basics, basic things. Absolutely. And always look for breathing, look for pulse and all of those things of because yeah. those are priority. Yeah. And stay with them until somebody comes in. Don't just leave them there Correct. on the ground. Correct. A lot of our loved ones and friends have, you know, they, they've actually have experienced seizures. Um, I personally know several friends who have seizures and, and basically they wear a bracelet or a pendant saying, you know, I am an epilepsy patient. If I have a seizure, do this, this, and this, or call this particular number. So Correct. people should be aware that people live lives with um, epilepsy. And so it's important to kind of make ourselves aware. But there are some really unusual types of epilepsy too. So let's talk about those. Uh, these are incredibly interesting. Right. I mean, I, I think uh, because people don't recognize these as epilepsies. Right. And, and they're around us. Exactly. I wonder how many people actually have these kind of unusual epilepsy that is just considered as you know, like a, a personality trait that is kind of strange. I tell you, before I knew these concepts, especially in retrospect, I, I definitely knew of absence seizures right. without knowing it. Right. Uh, meaning that in retrospect, I, I recognized, oh, this person was having absence seizures where they're just staring into space. And no matter how much what you were talking, you know, if you were talking to them or even kind of moving them, they would not respond. So mm. that's absence. But some of the other ones I also recognize. Yeah, absolutely. So the one that usually comes in the neurology boards is the gelastic seizures. Correct. Gelastic seizures are characterized by a very sudden bout of uncontrolled laughter. Um, I, I wonder if the Joker actually had some gelastic seizures. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it sometimes is inappropriate um, and sometimes it doesn't have any emotional context. Uh, and the fascinating thing about gelastic seizures are that it comes from a very specific area of the brain, the hypothalamus. Uh, hypothalamus or right next to the, the insular cortex. Right, exactly. There's usually a lesion or a tumor or something of that nature, especially if it comes up later in life. All of a sudden, somebody's uncontrollably laughing. It kind of points you right to that point. Right. Have you ever seen a patient with gelastic seizures? I have not. Me neither. Not. Yes. So they're quite rare. Yes. But I do know that if someone has gelastic seizures, they tend to have other types of seizures too. So it kind of, you know, it it, it, it mixes with other seizure uh, types and syndromes as well. Semiologies. Semiologies. And sometimes it get, kind of gets missed. Correct. Uh, but I've only read about it in textbooks. And the other type of seizures are decristic seizures. And these seizures involve uncontrollable crying, mm -hmm. so completely on the other end of the spectrum, or appearing very upset without any apparent reason. I've seen a couple of cases that we suspected mm. of this, and it was out of character and came later in life. And um, in both cases, the EEG didn't show. Now, a lot of times, um, an emergency room EEG is not going to show things. It's right. not as sensitive, right. so you have to repeat it. But I have seen a couple of these possible cases. It's fascinating, right? I mean, how many of these are confused with the psychological issues? Exactly, exactly. I, I wonder if, you know, some of the medications that are used, um, uh, you know, we actually use antiepileptic medication for uh, psychological conditions as well. And basically, you're just kind of throwing a blanket on it both is, the behavioral issues as well as potential epilepsy. Exactly, in case exactly. I digress. All right, the, the other uh, type or presentation is called automatisms. So automatisms are- Have you seen these? I have. Yes, Many. Too. Yes, yes. And so, so what happens is um, they uh, people show um, 
automatic involuntary behaviors like lip smacking. They just kind of they just kind of move their lips really fast, yeah. or they start licking their lips, or they have um, different movements of their mouth. You've I've seen them most commonly in the ICU setting, right. post anoxic events where the oxygen didn't come in, or a stroke or something like that. Is that I've usually probably... well because I see stroke patients exactly. quite often. I've actually seen it in a lot of um, subarachnoid hemorrhages. You know when you don't really necessarily see anything on um, on the uh, CT scans, Correct. but there's like a little bit of blood that irritates the entire meningeal system and they start coming up with automatisms. Um, it could be fumbling with objects. You know, uh, I remember there was this elderly lady who had Alzheimer's disease. Yes. And um, she was actually just fidgeting and they thought that fidgeting was, was essentially a part of dementia, but it would be on and off. It wasn't a continuous habit. And during the fidgeting, she would just go quiet. She would look down and she would start fidgeting with her shirt or her button or some cloth in her lap. And then she would feel very tired. And so when we did an EEG, we found out that she was actually having seizures. We did a paper of the association between Alzheimer's and seizures, a nationwide paper you and I published. Yes. Um, and which showed the relation between Alzheimer's and seizures. Exactly. Yes. And then very high correlation between the two. Uh, repetitive hand movement can be it. And some, some of these can be really subtle too. Um, I remember uh, reading a case of a patient with the uh, uh, automatism, very subtle seizures where he was actually a public speaker. Mm -hmm. He would go up on the stage and then in the middle of his speech, he would just go quiet for a few seconds and then he would just pick his nose or he would just kind of rub his nose with his fingers and then and then he would just continue. Uh, well. um, and it wasn't a tick. It wasn't a tick. Uh, okay. It wasn't a tick. And he actually said that there were lapses of memory loss. Amazing. Like he would actually get confused. And he thought that he would just lose track of the conversation, but they were actually automatisms. And then we have psychic <clears throat> symptoms. You've seen a lot of the psychic symptoms. We, in I the have. I'm a neurobehaviorist. Mm -hmm. And of course, whenever that something like this happens, they, 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 even if they suspect it, they get us. And, and we see these. And, you know, deja vu and jamais vu, which is a sense of unfamiliarity with the familiar surrounding mm. deja vu everybody knows it's right. like all of a sudden you you think you're familiar with something that that uh, that you shouldn't be familiar with like like you you've been there or yeah. you've done that every one of us it's actually a short circuit between mm. this uh, the, our ability to sense time and the the sensation itself mm -hmm. uh, so this sense of newness or sense of um, oldness is, is short-circuited upon the new behavior. That's deja vu. Right. Jamais vu is the opposite, which is a sense of unfamiliarity with a familiar surrounding. Yeah. Um, and, and then also all, all kinds of other behaviors that, uh, that, that, uh, that manifest as a result of the seizures. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of the behaviors, I mean, if, if we describe them as behaviors, are visual behaviors and visual things and, mm -hmm. and auditory things and things of that nature as well. Exactly. Hearing things and seeing things that and, are not necessarily Which is part of a there. sensory uh, form sensory of seizures, symptoms, right? Yeah. So, and sensory also includes, um, you know, things like tingling, pain, um, uh, numbness, um, sometimes um, abnormal sensation of heat or cold. But as much as hallucinations, where all of a sudden they see an, as real as reality itself, they see an entire storyline in front of them, mm -hmm. and that was actually manifest or, or created by the seizures. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. And then we have language disturbances, you know, aphasias, not able to speak, not able to understand. Um, and this happens when the seizures originate from the language centers of the brain, like the Broca's or the Wernicke's area. Correct. Um, there is a phenomenon called ictal paresis or ictal paralysis. And that's a 
post-seizure phenomenon where a particular limb or part of the body just goes limp. And is that paralyzed. part of the Jacksonian march kind of a thing where where somebody has um, a seizure and then there's a we all often mistake it for for a stroke, don't we? Exactly. I, mean, I see that quite often. And um, what happens is people have a seizure. It could be tonic-clonic or it could just be tonic. And it, it, that's why it's so difficult to actually recognize what happened because people don't really pay attention to the patient and they come up, come to the emergency room with paralysis. And one of the most important things we need to do at that moment, because stroke is an emergency and you have to give them a clot-busting medication to mm -hmm. get rid of a clot. So the neurologist has to quickly make a decision and understand by just speaking with people who have observed the patient going through that, whether it's a seizure or a stroke, right? Well, so yeah. things that actually stop us from um, giving them or considering a clot-busting medication is loss of consciousness. Correct. Stroke patients usually don't have stro uh, loss Unless of consciousness. Unless it's massive stroke. Unless it's massive. And then you will know it in many other ways as right. well. But if they have some paralysis and they're sleeping and they have, say, for example, incontinence, and on the CT scan you don't see a massive stroke, then you have to think about seizures. Correct. Um, this is, I'm actually reading it from the list of things that we collected, and you found out something about forced thinking. <laughs> forced thinking being a type of a seizure? We, uh, Can is, we all have that seizure? Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> but it's not the kind of forced thinking that you have control over. Oh, I see. Uh, it's almost like obsessive, but it's even more than that. So it's almost like you're going down a rabbit hole oh. and you can't stop the rabbit oh. hole. And you're, that thought just takes you somewhere. That sounds but uncomfortable. It's almost like you're, you're not even connected to the world anymore. And so you're losing control. You're losing control. Yes, the medium or what you're surfing on is not, is not a surfboard, is a thought, but you have no control where it's going. I remember reading about it in Plum and Posner, the, yes. the textbook that we have, but I hadn't seen that for a very long time. So these are what? These are repetitive thoughts. You go down in, in, in yes. a particular pathway. They're uncomfortable. You can't get out of it. They're intrusive. And they're intrusive. And sometimes they're, they're quite, um, uh, they can have um, unusual manifestations, unusual thoughts, mm. weird thoughts. There's a, there's a definite correlation between, between people who have these intrusive forced thoughts and, um, and uh, psychotic behaviors and others as well. Wow, interesting. All right. Um, and then, I just want to make sorry. sure that people recognize that this is not an, a psychological phenomenon. Yeah. Well, as neurologists, we think even psychological phenomena are neurological phenomena. We just haven't distilled down to the neurochemistry level. But, um, but it is definitely a neurological phenomenon because it's an electrical out overflow in a particular area that forces this thought. Mm. And if you give certain medication, it stops those thought processes. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Um, and then there are these seizures that um, are um, manifest as, a, as, as intense emotional reactions. Um, and these are the types that Fyodor Dostoevsky experienced, where people may experience intense feelings of pleasure, joy, anger, sometimes even orgasm. And the specific manifestations depends on what area of the brain is involved. Correct. I mean, uh, I believe one of his quotes was that if people knew, I'm, I'm paraphrasing badly, but if people knew these experiences that I was having, they would actually, uh, I would act, no, he was talking about himself in first person. I would sacrifice all of my life for that moment. Wow. That's the level of intensity of pleasure. Obviously he had different kinds of seizures as well, but those were the intense one. And people that have these kind of seizures, um, um, some of them actually start 
provoking the seizures. You know, oh, wow. you stand in front of a shutter and move the shutter up and down so the light, you know, photogenic. Uh, 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 um, uh, photic stimulation. Photic stimulation. The light yeah. stimulating the seizures coming and and certain smells and things right. of that nature. So um, I, you can imagine the intensity of that feeling, given that it's coming from that one particular. And this, most of these come from the amygdala, which is the emotional core. It's a raw emotional core of humanity. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, and and he suffered from these as well. Interesting. So amygdala specifically, um, and also the insular cortex, temporal lobe, that area. Correct. And, and the insular cortex is so interesting because in many ways, you know, the, the mirror neurons, the emotional centers are connected to that. There's a visceral biological connection between who we are, our emotions, and, um, and, the, uh, and our body's response to it in the insular cortex. Wow. So, so it's uh, quite a powerful um, phenomenon that manifests. I remember in one of your community <laughs> talks, um, many years ago, and that was fascinating. You you said something like, um, sometimes people who have um, emotional seizures, um, depending on what cultural background they come from, they may actually be hesitant to discuss that with their with their doctors because it's such a personal uh, uh, you know issue. And that that makes uh, it very challenging to diagnose people with that. It is. I mean, and first I think, of all, sorry, it kind of overlaps with psychological problems and uh, psychiatric issues too, right? Uh, even more so mm -hmm. here because psychological. I mean, with seizures, there the stigma was massive. Mm -hmm. People were burnt. People. I remember going to to some some of the third world countries, and I remember in one of them, I, I don't know which one it was, um, I saw a young boy f dropping to the ground having seizures, and all of a sudden, everybody around him started praying and moving away from him as if, and they said, and I said, what's going on? He, they were saying that the devil has overtaken and, yeah. and, and yeah. he's been possessed by the devil. Um, I tell you this, uh, uh, th th this is actually fairly common even now. Um, and so the, the, the stigma is so massive that people will not even go to a doctor for this. In mm -hmm. fact, when I went to Afghanistan, one of the most common things I was called to people's homes to, especially people who had some money and power, because they, they other, the general population wouldn't get access to me. I was the deputy minister, and they would, they, they would, they would call me these these warlords and everybody. Is that there was a young child in the in another room that they had not told anybody about who they, was. They who, wouldn't tell you what they, it was, right? No, they would just invite you. Over they would invite for me and dinner or, or lunch, lunch or breakfast, whatever it was, and they would show me this child that was having intractable seizures, and nobody knew about it. Yeah, it, nobody knew that they had a child. That was having these intractable seizures, and in those countries, it's fairly common because during the ch you know, birthing process, the the child is anoxic a lot of times. The oxygen doesn't get to their brain, so they have foci of or seizures, and then they're not controlled, so it becomes a permanent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it's it was the saddest thing to see, and the prevalence is massively under underreported. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, just to kind of talk talk about the historical um, aspects of this. Um, I, I know that mothers, you know, in, in those countries, especially in Afghanistan, when I worked with the Doctors Without Borders, I would be allowed to go and talk to to women. And, you know, mothers who actually gave birth to children with epilepsy were essentially just banned. You know, they were they were not thought of as as um, productive human beings. Correct. And that woman would just be allowed to take care of that child. And it was one of the saddest things I've experienced. And you know there are some there are some cultures in ancient times when people would have seizures, 
like you said, it would it was believed that they would be under the influence of evil forces. And we've actually seen rituals performed to kind of cast out the responsible 20th entity. century, 21st century. Yeah. And most of these, then, you know, yeah. I, but we've seen these. Conversely, there are some um, there are some societies and some cultures where seizures are a sign of divine intervention. Correct. And so it, basically they are portrayed as individuals who who have the capacity to have, you know, some line of communication with higher powers. Um, and in one story that you were actually telling me about last night, in ancient, ancient Greece, people believed that epilepsy was a sacred disease and those who experienced seizures were thought to possess prophetic abilities. Beautiful. And, um, of course, I mean, the stories of witchcraft in medieval Europe and in the 18th century when, um, you know, when when people were trying to understand what seizures were, they were usually linked to madness and hysteria, and these people would actually be um, sent to asylums. And, and the bias was if the women had it, it was hysteria and madness. Mm. If the men had it, it was usually not given those titles as much. Oh, my goodness. Crazy. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad we've come a long way. Yes. Um, talking about the disparities between men and women in seizures, one of the things that is more common in, or one of the types of seizures that is more common in women is pseudo-seizures. Yeah, or also called non-epileptic, uh, uh, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Exactly. And these are a type of seizures that kind of resemble epileptic seizures, but they're not caused by any by any. It's mostly psychological, activities. isn't it? It's mostly psychological. They are very real. You know, one of the things that neurologists or doctors always want to make sure that patients understand is that they're very real. People who don't have a good awareness of it, they're basically, you know, sometimes they say very mean things to patients saying it's just in your head or you're faking it. And even if they don't say it, there's an intrinsic bias. Absolutely. The, uh, there's a judgment against these people. Absolutely. Yeah. But these are seizures where patients don't actually have control over them and they happen and they're very uncomfortable. And, and it's usually as a result of a trauma, not often, result of a trauma during childhood. Exactly. Um, uh, we know that the cases of rape or, or molestation or abuse where the child uh, had these movements and it actually was enough to push it, the, the behavior away or the, um, the, the, the person that, that was um, involved in this behavior. And so then this behavior just became um, permanent. Right. But there are many, many reasons for it, exactly. but I'm just giving you just some of the highlights. Yeah, or it could be a manifestation of the stress and anxiety that people live with. And, and the way we distinguish these, and I, I always tell my residents that uh, don't just say that there's no judgment, but live it, understand it. Um, and, and, and in doing so, you give... Um, honor to the patient, you give honor, uh, importance to their past, you create a pathway of communication and also a pathway for treatment. And the way you distinguish this from regular seizures, you do a three-day or seven-day uh, video EEG where they're um, uh, kept in a room, in a, a hospital room, and um, uh, there's a, the EEG devices permanently or, or for that duration on, on their head, and there's a video. So whenever they have the event, you can correlate the event with the EEG readings. And then when you correlate it, often there's not seizure activity. And right. Seizure activities are distinct readings that we know exactly that this is seizure and this is just muscle movement. It, it's very easy to tell yeah. real seizures from 
um, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Um, and even in, in real life, um, I mean, as a trained neurologist, we were taught of what to look for. So, you know, their movements, uh, the loss of consciousness is usually not there, the jerking movements, um, th those, those are some of the key features that kind of differentiate between the two. Um, in any case, um, therapy for pseudo seizures uh, involve uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you know, definitely involves psychotherapy with a psychologist and a psychiatrist addressing any underlying psychological issues that may have brought. And it sometimes on. social workers. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe there are some some um, um, abnormal or aberrant behaviors and situations in home that 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 prompted this. Absolutely, and that's why I think. Treatment of seizures require a very comprehensive and a multifaceted approach Correct. by social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, neurologists, um, and and you know even the family members have to be involved to understand um, the signs and symptoms, the side effects, and things of that nature. Coming back to Dostoevsky's uh, story, and um, we're we're weaving in Dostoevsky's story throughout this uh, um, uh, journey with epilepsy. It's important to understand that epilepsy was still a poorly understood condition in the 19th century, and the mysterious nature of this disease and the stigma that was associated with it often left those affected like Dostoevsky feeling isolated and mm -hmm. misunderstood. Um, Dostoevsky's seizures were likely temporal lobe epilepsies, which, like we said earlier, affects emotions, memory, and uh, for patients to experience sensory perceptions. And his seizures particularly manifested in various ways. Sometimes he would lose consciousness and experience convulsions, while other times he would undergo very strange perceptual and emotional disturbances. Yes, And these episodes were triggered by stress, by fatigue, and even specific sensory stimuli like certain sounds and certain sights. Um, despite his immense physical and emotional um, toll uh, that the seizures took on, Dostoevsky found a silver lining in his condition. He described a rare form of ecstatic aura. I, I described this earlier. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and he thought that it was the greatest gift he could have ever had. Yeah. So he felt joy, harmony, and uh, like you said, uh, the statement that he made was, I would not exchange my disease for all the treasures of the world. Uh. And, and so these um, experiences profoundly influenced his writing and the, the vivid descriptions of his altered state of mind were actually traced in his work. It became part of the character. Exactly. In his novel, The Idiot, the protagonist, Prince Mishkin, is an epileptic who experiences similar moments of transcendence, transcendence, transcendence. I'll say it again. In his novel, The Idiot, the protagonist, Prince Mishkin, is an epileptic who experiences similar moments of transcendence during his seizures. Absolutely. Dostoevsky's struggle with epilepsy also gave him a very deep understanding of the human condition and human suffering and their resilience. And this empathy was seen in the portrayal of multiple characters who grapple with their own physical and mental challenges, as well as their moral dilemmas. Uh, for example, in his book, Crime and Punishment, the character Raskolnikov often faces moral crises and existential questions and the consequences of their actions, which Dostoevsky believed were inextricably linked to the human experience. Mm -hmm. 
let's talk about some other historical figures who also had epilepsy. We talked about Julius Caesar earlier. And, you know, for those of you don't, who don't know, Julius Caesar was a military general and a statesman. And he was reported to have had experienced several episodes of tonic-clonic seizures. And um, some historians believe that his seizures were as a result of a potential brain tumor or some other neurological disorder as well. I don't know how much of the detail we know about that. I mean, most of these um, uh, phenomenon are or historical uh, inf historical information that comes to us is a patchwork. Mm. And some of them are stronger and some of them are weaker, but but nonetheless they are a patchwork of uh, of of what we've what people other people have written about. Absolutely. Them. Another figure that had epilepsy was Napoleon. We believe so. We yeah. believe that, right? And some historians argue that his symptoms may have been because of some other medical condition like a stroke or a migraine, but they just you know, they, they put that diagnosis of epilepsy on him as well. Yes. Um, Socrates um, is uh, said to have had multiple seizures. Now I'm incredulous about that one because now there's question whether Socrates even existed was or was he a creation of Plato's, you know, literature and right. because there's no historical um, direct reference of Socrates and, and this being so far, you know, about 300 BCs or 400 BC. That, that makes it less likely. But nonetheless, it, it's an interesting story. But they mentioned that he would go into trance-like states. I mean, that could be anything. Correct. He could be just thinking. So they just didn't like thinking. his thinking. Obviously, oh. didn't like his thinking. Or didn't answer people when yeah. they were talking to him. They're like, just, just leave me alone. Asking dumb questions. Leave me alone. I know. Right? I'm thinking. I'm <laughs> yes. busy. Yes. All right. And then Vincent. Just give me the hemlock, for God's sakes. <laughs> Vincent yeah. Van Gogh? Yes. Uh, so Vincent Van Gogh is more more proximal. It's uh, you know it's um, uh, you know eighteen hundreds. Yes. And, and uh, with him, there's more of evidence that this might be it. Even with his paintings, and all of a sudden, certain colors were dominated. We know that with seizures, there's an there's an influence of color and sound. Yeah. Or a dominance of it. A mm. dominance of certain things, certain beliefs, certain thoughts. Uh, hyper religiosity. A hyper. Uh, um, uh, uh, smells, mm -hmm. colors, mm -hmm. all of these things. There's an excessive amount of certain things, and we know this for with seizures. And they think that some of his artistic expression might have come from this. Interesting. Uh, well, yeah. he was known to have some psychiatric issues. He did, yes. and I'm sure there probably must have been an overlap of you know seizures with the psychiatric issues, or one influencing the other, etc. Correct. But they, I, I don't. We're not going to make any jokes about the ear or anything. So yeah, we'll yeah, leave that, that alone. We'll leave that alone. And uh, the author of Alice in <clears throat> Wonderland, Lewis Carroll. Yes. So see, that makes sense. Well, no, we're. Or we're maybe he's just an artist, and he was very creative. Correct. I don't Why wanna, are we I calling sure him an epileptic? Right. We don't right? make everything that's uh, eccentric as a, a byproduct of epilepsy. No, but, but he again, because it was later, it was in the 1800s, um, and there were some description of his symptoms in his diaries. We actually wrote down yeah, exactly. that he was experiencing. There's them. more so data to that. Not everybody who's colorful and you know comes up with all these you know fantasies has seizures. So Correct. We just want to be clear about that. Exactly. Right. Um, the one that I got surprised by was Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman, the American abol abolitionist and activist, suffered from seizures and other neurological symptoms when she had a head injury um, during her childhood. And some historians believe that she had epilepsy as a result of that injury. That makes sense. All right. Yes. And then Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, reported suffered from seizures throughout his life. Alexander the Great had seizures too? 
I don't know. So I, I, I am always incredulous when it's that far back. Okay. Because as you and I take history from patients now. Right. And you know, with the, and and even now we have a difficult time getting good history. Right. And and when people write things, they they really write them in in general terms to get that kind of extrapolation from. 300 BC is, I'm, 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 I question it. Right. But there's right. no question that there was that. probably more seizures back then because one of the main causes of seizures is head trauma and trauma and infections and all these things that happened, happened birth much related more. Birth-related injuries. Birth-related injuries, all yeah. of these things, infections. But, um, but the reports are a little sketchy right. that far back. So let's talk about the epidemiology of um, seizures or epilepsy. And people will be shocked how frequent this is, how, how prevalent this is. It's a very, very common disorder. Um, <clears throat> and the numbers uh, were, you know, they were, they were incredible. Uh, according to WHO, World Health Organization, about 50 million people around the world have epilepsy, which corresponds to about, you know, six people for every 1,000 uh, individuals. And of course, this prevalence varies depending on where people live, socioeconomic status, and also um, age is a, a very big factor. And I'm 100% sure that this is an underrepresented number because in a lot of regions, they're not, they're never recorded, reported um, because yeah. of all those things that we talked about earlier. Right. There are higher rates reported in lower to middle income countries compared to high income countries. And this yeah. could be because of limited access to healthcare. Um, some risk factors are higher in those countries as well. And it also depends on data collection too. Correct. Um, as far as age distribution is concerned, it can occur at any age, but it, the incidence is typically high in early childhood and older adulthood. Correct. Different ideologies. Ex exactly, exactly. So the incidence kind of like, shoots up after the age of 65, uh, but in low and middle income countries, the incidence is higher in children compared mm -hmm. to older individuals. Now, there are multiple epilepsy syndromes that are seen in children that are not seen in adults. And I think it's important for us to kind of name some of them. Uh, for example, um, there is a particular epilepsy syndrome called benign epilepsy with centrotemporal spikes. They're usually named according to the EEG pattern. Correct. But they're also given a, another, another shorter name, either based on the scientists who found out about it or just the manifestations of it. Like, for example... Um, the benign epilepsy and central temporal spikes is also known as Rolandic epilepsy, and it's one of the most common epilepsy syndromes in children, and about 15 to 25% of all childhood epilepsy cases are Rolandic epilepsy. Then we have the absence epilepsy, which you mentioned, and this can happen be uh, between the ages of 4 to 10, and it accounts for about 10 to 17% of all childhood epilepsies. And this one is common because, you know, children actually just stop doing whatever yes. they're doing. They have their eyes open. It sometimes is associated with automatism, lip smacking, sometimes blinking or, you know, gesturing or facial expressions. And it's treatable. About 70% 70, 70 of them resolve spontaneously Absolutely. on their own and the other 30% is treatable. It's, it's important to recognize this early because it has profound effect on their education going forward. That's true. Yeah. That's and then true. the other third type is the febrile seizures, exactly. which is very common and usually babies, goes away. Yes. Right. Um, in adolescence, we have the juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, uh, we have juvenile absence epilepsy, and then in adults, we tend to see more of temporal lobe epilepsies or generalized epilepsy. Idiopathic generalized epilepsy is the type of epilepsy where there's really no known reason for it. That's our favorite term in medicine, idiopathic. idiopathic. Like, yes. I don't know what's going on. And about 20 to 40% of all epilepsy in adults are idiopathic. Correct. And in the elderly, you know, the 
incidence is estimated to be around 100 to 200 per 100,000 person high. years. That's very high. Yeah. And it increases with age, and the highest incidence is seen in people uh, ages 80 and over. Mm -hmm. And the most common cause of epilepsy in elderly includes stroke, uh, traumatic brain injury, brain tumors, Alzheimer's disease, and some other neurodegenerative conditions of the brain. You I, see quite a lot of I, that, I right? see quite a lot. And, and if you haven't seen the seizure, but the person is altered, don't just assume Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. um, if, if they're, especially if it happens suddenly. Right. Uh, definitely get it evaluated for a seizure. It's much more common, as I said, as we said, in, in the elderly, and it's treatable, and it's um, um, and it's often missed. That's true. That's true. And there are some other risk factors for having seizures in elderly too: a unmanaged blood pressure, um, diabetes, um, cardiovascular disease that affects blood flow to the brain. Arrhythmias. Arrhythmias can be a risk factor too. Um, and unfortunately, it's associated with high uh, risk of mortality. People actually Correct. die because of seizures. And, um, you know, um, and even if, if the mortality is not there for someone, it definitely impairs their function and affects their quality of life significantly. What are some of the gender differences that we see? Uh, they're pretty much the same, but slightly higher among men. There are many reasons. Uh, in the young younger population, it's obviously because of head trauma and injuries. Young men get in trouble. They yeah. they fall, they hit their heads, uh, you know, whether it's uh, sports injuries or others. Yeah. So that seems to be more correlated. Uh, but in general, slightly higher on the men's side. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, and um, as far as uh, risk of mortality with epilepsy is concerned, we know that people who have epilepsy are at a higher risk of premature death. There's a there's a acronym SUDEP, which is Sudden Unexpected Death in Epilepsy. Um, and the mortality rate is about two to three times higher compared to the general population. Correct. So that's something that, to be very aware Speaking of. Speaking to that, people who have epilepsy or we suspect that they have seizures mm -hmm. or epilepsy shouldn't be driving. No. Because one of the things that happens is people who continue driving, they have an event during driving and they get in accidents and they hurt themselves and others. And It's a very common uh, reason for so it. So that's absolutely. one of the main reasons people lose their license. That's true. That's true. At, at least for the period of time until you get control over the seat. Uh, exactly. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk about the treatment of epilepsy. And um, as far as diagnosis is concerned, we have EEGs. We have neuroimaging. Um, the EEGs can be, you know, a one-time EEG um, and that usually lasts for, what, about 20 to 30 minutes um, of getting information about these discharges in the brain. It could be a two-hour EEG. It could be a half-a-day EEG. It could be a one-day EEG. Seven-day EEG if you suspect that it's uh, pseudo-seizures or some other thing or, mm -hmm. or infrequent seizures. We have had patients who are in the um, you know epilepsy medical unit, the EMU, for two weeks. Correct. And right. what, what they did was withheld their medication, their antiepileptic medication, and just let them have seizures in a very controlled environment, in a protective environment, just to kind of look at its manifestation and behavioral disorders uh, to be able to treat it better. Sometimes you even provoke it with photic stimulation, with, with lack of sleep and mm -hmm. things of that nature as well. Yeah, Absolutely. and to see whether they are <clears throat> eligible for something more, uh, you know, uh, extensive like uh, surgeries and things like that, Correct. which we'll talk about. But as far as medications are concerned, we have great medications now. We do, we do. I mean, uh, most seizures can be controlled. Uh, <clears throat> controlled doesn't mean complete abatement, com but but controlled enough where people can can live normal lives. 
Now, a lot of children that are premature have seizures. Of course, they're not living normal lives, but they have protracted seizures and you need multiple medications on board to control it. Um, there are many different ways you can actually approach this 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 treatment, mm -hmm. um, but but the reality is that we we are not treating seizures well because in a lot of the community hospitals, definitely in third world countries and second world countries, it's not diagnosed well, it's not treated well. The, all the pharmaceutical uh, uh, tools that we have aren't available. But even in the United States and in the West, um, uh, in in many settings. It's not diagnosed well. It's not treated well. All seizures don't respond to all drugs. In fact, some seizures are uh, uh, worsened yeah, and propagated true. by certain drugs, certain seizure drugs. Exactly. So you have to be careful which which drug is given to what type of seizures. That that requires a little bit of knowledge in, in the right setting in the right hospital that recognizes the seizures and treats the 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 the, the seizures. And sometimes you need as many as three, four drugs. Exactly. And that's why epilepsy is a subspecialty in neurology. Correct. People actually do their neurology residency and they go for fellowships because it is such an extensive field. So if somebody has seizures, they need to work with a an epilepsy specialist rather Correct. than a general neurologist or a general practitioner. No disrespect to anyone. And like you said, the treatment depends on um, the cause or the risk factor. In low and middle income countries, um, one of the most common reasons for children and adults having seizures are parasitic infections. Um, there's uh, neurocysticercosis, you know, where as there's a like, result of eating uh, undercooked pigs. Yes, as the most common. Pork. There are other reasons, but that's the most common reason. It's the most common <clears throat> reason, and uh, on MRIs, you tend to see little cysts in the brain. Multiple. Exactly. Yeah. Multiple. And isn't it the most common reason for seizures in, in South America? It, it really is. Yes, yeah. it really is. Like as a matter of fact, as as neurologists, when we are getting history, and if there's a history of someone living in South America, or even who had lived there for a while and have come to the United States with seizures, with new seizures, neurocystisarcosis is on the top of the list. Correct. Um, and also poor access to prenatal care. Um, and for mothers who didn't have any care and even during uh, childbirth when they were not, you know, cared for properly, that's when children tend to have some anoxic brain injury or something of that nature that kind of, you know, brings on those seizures for the rest of their lives. So treatment depends on um, the, the cause. All right. So do you want me to... Um, do you want me to go back to no, Dostoevsky's no, books because it really. doesn't sound no, right? No, no, at this it's point. We're at one we hour. Yeah. Okay, so Anton, we're going to cut all of this, this conversation about you know, me asking Dean. Even the treatments we might, uh, okay. I, I, so I can, uh, you can start historical, then I, I'll say the mechanisms of treatment, then I have some notes on that, separate notes. I think historical we should stop because we actually went into like talking no, about uh, Bromide, remember? Bromide. No, 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 I'm talking about, not, no, 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 not that kind of history. Um, uh, treatment history. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll start. Hold on. Yeah, that one right there. Charles Locke. You can start Middle Ages. Okay, so start from here. So I'm glad we've come a long way from the Middle Ages when treatment strategies um, you know, where essentially spiritual and supernatural explanations and, you know, 
hold on one second. Let me just go ahead and do this again. Supernatural. All right. Start from here. So I'm glad that we've moved away from, you know, some of the mechanisms of treatments in the Middle Ages and uh, during the Renaissance period and the scientific revolution, people and doctors and scientists began to understand seizures uh, more and more, and they started experimenting with chemical treatments. And I believe it was the 19th century when the first effective anti-seizure medication, potassium bromide, was introduced by Sir Charles um, Lowcock, marking the beginning of the modern pharmacological treatments for seizures. So yes. he was the man. He was. And since then, we've moved quite a ways forward. It's become uh, very personalized. And we, isn't it? Yeah, we, we, we know the mechanisms of seizure. And, and we would, although the, the, the treatments are still a little blunt, it involves the totality of the brain. It doesn't go directly to the foci, and unless you do surgery. Right. And that's actually something I want to talk about is that there are these tools that we use, PET scan and, and specific types of MRI, and even neuropsychological testing where we localize the seizure. And then surgeons can go in and take that part out and the person can live fairly well. Yeah. I mean, amazingly, at least often the seizure frequency is reduced, uh, if not completely eliminated. Mm. Uh, but the other ways that treatments work is by um, affecting the, uh, the overactivity of seizure. So a seizure is an overactive focus that goes out of control, right? Mm -hmm. So you either control it by by increasing the inhibitory um, um, uh, neurotransmitters. What, what is that? GABA. Yeah. The, the, so these maybe neurotransmitters that, the, whose function it is to inhibit, to mm. slow things down. Yeah. <clears throat> or, um, um, and, or increase the activity of those things that, um, uh, or reduce the activity of those neurotransmitters that stimulate. That excite. Their job the is to neurons. excite. Right. Uh, or you affect the neurotransmitter uh, flow between neurons, you mm -hmm. slow that down. But if you can see in all of those, it's a blunt mechanism. It's not a focused mechanism. It's the totality of the brain. Yes, these are effective. They all have side effects. Some of them have cognitive side effects. Some of them have, you know, behavioral side effects, but they, but they work. They stop the focus of seizure from going, getting out of control most of the time. And, uh, so we have, tremendous number of drugs now mm -hmm. that can be instituted and, and is effective. Some of the common medications that are used for seizure are carbamazepine, valproic acid, lamotrigine, levetiracetam or Keppra, and there's yes. so many more newer, better ones um, for different kinds of seizures, whether it's generalized seizures or localization-related epilepsy. Um, and then, like you said, um, uh, surgery is is a very uh, effective measure of addressing localization-related epilepsy, which means there is a particular part of the brain where there's abnormal electrical activity. And with EEG, um, they're able to actually localize that area. Correct. And then the neurosurgeons go we, ahead and get rid of it. We use PET scan as well. Agreed, yeah. yes. There are different types of scans in combination with EEGs. Um, and then we have the vagus nerve stimulation there's a responsive neurostimulation, mm -hmm. there's deep brain st uh, stimulation. So all of these, um, you know, um, it's kind of invasive, but Correct. these are treatments which involve some sort of an electrode that is implanted in a specific part of the brain. To counter the, uh, the electrical activity of the seizure. Exactly. And uh, people actually do very, very well with these, especially with vagus nerve stimulation. And then, so, and then as far as... Um, 
therapies or intervention, lifestyle intervention is concerned, there are some dietary uh, approaches that work well with specific types of seizures. And this is where the entire ketogenic diet world comes from. This is where it originated. It from. works. Right. In this case, there it's pretty efficacious. Exactly. Um, especially in uh, specific types of um, um, seizure syndromes, the Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, uh, in children, that's where ketogenic diet was actually studied, and it significantly reduced the frequency of seizures in intractable uh, conditions. This is usually kids that have multiple seizure medications and are, and are still having seizures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So they're, they're called drug-resistant epilepsy. Correct. Um, so <clears throat> these diets are typically high in fat, low in carbohydrates, they alter the body's metabolism, and they make the neurons use ketones instead of glucose, and it seems to have a stabilizing effect. And, and it's usually in cases where the child, uh, I mean, they use it beyond that now as well, but it was at the, at the, at the onset, and, and even now, for the most part, kids that are not that responsive, that have been overwhelmed by the seizures, and uh, now any drastic measure is, is taken. Absolutely. And as far as the influence of lifestyle is concerned, I mean, of course, lifestyle factors can significantly influence the effectiveness of seizure treatment and the overall management of a seizure disorder. Um, there are particular types of activities that can bring on seizures. For example, one of the most common reasons why people tend to have seizures if they have a diagnosis of epilepsy is lack of sleep. Correct. Or any sleep disorder. If they don't get enough sleep, they have they have frequent um, seizures. So although getting seizures just from lack of sleep is extremely rare, definitely, and yes. we think that even in that case there must have been a focus, there must have been a focus uh, that 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 needed to be instigated. But usually, if a lack of sleep instigates an underlying uh, disease process. During my practice, I have only seen one patient, a twenty two year old kid, college kid who had seizures because of lack of sleep. We did everything we could to find out what was going on, all kinds of imaging, all kinds of EEGs. It, it was a seizure as detected it was by a, EEG. Yeah, he just kind of was wow. very nervous about his exam, and I think he had like uh, five nights of all-nighters, just back to back to back. Oh, wow. And he had Red Bulls and coffee and caffeine, and he had a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Mm -hmm. And over a year's period, we kept on doing more and testing. no more seizures. No more seizures. Wow, that's yeah. interesting. So that was one case that I remember, but like you said, it, it, it can happen. So it's important for patients who have epilepsy to establish good sleep hygiene uh, mechanism. And then what about stress? Again, uh, stress not by itself, but as a adjunct, as a as a add on, as a as a thing that could um, uh, exacerbate an underlying seizure focus. Okay, that's right. So before we started this um, this uh, episode, I went on our Instagram stories and I posted um, a question. You know, like ask me anything. I said we're doing a yes. um, podcast on epilepsy and seizures. Do you have any questions about it? And I got. So many questions about the relationship between diet and seizures. What can we eat to make sure that we don't have more seizures? Yeah, uh, and and if you have seizures, um, of course, eating healthy is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Which and we've talked about this. It's not ketogenic diet. Ketogenic diet is in under severe conditions where the person is completely intractable. But uh, for for regular seizures, for everybody else, it's 
eating healthy. How, to be honest because with you. Because it gives you vascular health. It right. lowers your blood pressure, lowers your glucose. These are the instigators of seizures. But even for adult seizures that are intractable, yes. there's no evidence that ketogenic diet actually makes it better. For adults. For adults. Yeah. It's usually in children. Um, but yeah, I think um, I don't think there's a direct relationship, or at least we don't have the evidence, be, direct evidence between um, the association of diet and uh, frequency of epilepsy. But generally speaking, when people eat a healthy diet, they have better vascular risk factors um, and lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol, lower well, uh, their sugar levels. These are the instigators, as we said. And I, I'm, 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 I think that this is something that's understudied. And uh, um, I, I think it, it does have an effect over time, but that takes a more of a protracted temporal. Exactly. Um, Absolutely. Um, and uh, of, of course, as far as nutrition is concerned, things like alcohol yes. is a big instigator of seizures and people who have seizures should stay away from alcohol altogether. Drugs, Drugs anything that you, you, you eat. Um, we know that um, intake of sugary uh, beverages or too many refined carbohydrates could potentially increase the frequency of certain seizures, but we don't have a very close link to it. Correct. They've done some studies on Mediterranean diet and people who consume a Mediterranean diet, which is essentially, you know, more plants, less saturated fat, less processed foods, they tend to actually have better control of their seizure uh, frequency. I just want to clean up my previous statement by just saying drugs. It's, it's such a broad concept. What we do know is about um, specific um, illicit drugs like uh, cocaine mm -hmm. and, and, and things like that, methamphetamines, well. which are stimulants and which can uh, uh, propagate seizures. Absolutely, yes. you're right. Um, I think at the end of the day, the most important thing for people to um, remember is medication adherence. Uh, one of the things that we see, or at least I'll speak for myself, I see in my practice is uh, patient are placed on medication, they feel better, they think they're good, and then they stop using these medications and then they start having seizures again. Yes. Just because the seizures are not there doesn't mean that you should let go and not be you know, compliant with your medicine. Mm -hmm. Please take them. And always change them with under the supervision of your neurologist while you're working with them. Skipping them, stopping them, uh, adding things on to them, sometimes even adding... Um, um, you know, nutrients and herbal medications that are out there can actually be dangerous because they interact with medication. They do, they do. They change your metabolism of liver when most of these medications are metabolized in the liver. So it's very important to pay attention to that. What about exercise? Yeah, like everything else, keeping healthy uh, reduces your chance of those things that can propagate seizures. Exactly. Um, another question that we got uh, was, what are some of the triggers for seizure? As always, sleeplessness yep. is definitely a, a main uh, trigger. That's a that's a very common trigger. The others are flashing lights, specific sounds, but those are for people that have seizures, right? So not exactly. for general public, not so for general public. Alcohol yeah. and certain medications; those are the kinds of things that propagate and 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 instigate an underlying seizure. There are some times when you go to the movie theater <clears throat> and if the movie has a lot of flashing lights, there's always a, a warning that comes at uh, the beginning of the movie saying, you know, be very careful. There are some sounds and patterns that could potentially trigger uh, seizures. And then having a very uh, strong support system is important. You know, that includes your family, friends, your healthcare providers, and your community. This comes back to Dostoevsky. This comes back to um, all of this, uh, which is that... <clears throat> The person going through this kind of a 
significant disease that affects every aspect of their existence, how they feel about themselves, how isolated they feel, yeah. um, how, how their sense of mortality is affected is going to have a profound psychological effect. So they're going to need support. Definitely. And, uh, and, and, and even in the medical community, the doctors are only prepared for just dispensation of medication. True. Yes, we don't have the time to have the interaction. So there has to be a system in place that, that gives them the kind of support uh, that uh, gives, makes them more adherent to medication, uh, living healthy, and all of these things. Imagine what, what in the 18th century, what Dostoevsky was going through and, and hundreds of thousands of others that had seizures and were hiding it. Yeah. Dostoevsky's life was marked with a series of challenges and personal tragedies. You know, his mom died, his dad died. His dad was a retired military surgeon. And, you know, he was placed in prison and um, he actually passed away uh, because of, uh, you know. Complications. He actually passed away because of some complications at the age of 59, I believe. It was medical complications, right. but there's suspicion that it, that it might have had to do with seizures as well. Because he was actually in prison, they're thinking that um, the exposure to um, the prison hard work uh, affected Stress, his lungs. Stress, lack of sleep. And he actually yeah. had a pulmonary hemorrhage, but you know, we, we, you never know what it was back then. But yeah, 59 was young for that brilliant Very mind. Amazing, amazing, great, super genius that that struggled. Um, the struggles gave him the, the, the material that created some of the most incredible books and philosophical thoughts. What Dostoevsky did was took those conversations that Plato and Socrates and others and many other philosophers throughout history and brought him into real life individuals and characters. He was reliving the, his own experience and his own thoughts, his own tensions, his own struggles about uh, existential uh, struggles and put him into characters so it would be meaningful to everybody. Mm. It's, it's such an, a beautiful concept to realize that uh, it's these struggles sometimes that bring out the genius in, a, in, in the most meaningful way because the struggles when they're not overwhelming, obviously they weren't completely overwhelming, can push the person into deep, deep recesses of the mind and bring out much more meaning that's accessible to the rest of us on the surface. Yeah, beautifully stated. I really enjoyed this episode. It was. It's. I. I. I always was uh, intrigued by this incredible writer and also this disease. Absolutely. And um, yeah, it was beautiful. Well, hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did, and thank you so much for joining us. Mm -hmm.